For the next three weeks, we'll be sharing some talks from our Bite-Size Theology series on the person of Christ. Bite-Size was originally designed to be watched as a video with a handout, both of which can be found via the link in the description of this episode, along with other Bite-Size Theology talks. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Bite-Size Theology. Today we're thinking about the hypostatic union. Maybe that's a brand new term for you. Uh, perhaps you've heard it from Shailin, I don't know. Um, by the end of this session, uh, hopefully it will be familiar to you. Um, I'll put a definition there at the top. It's the union of Christ's human and divine natures into one being. Hopefully all will become clear as we look at it today. Uh, if you've been with us these last couple of weeks, we've been thinking about Christology Uh, the person of Jesus, we've thought about Jesus' humanity um, and we've thought about Jesus' divinity and we've looked at a whole range of texts, Bible texts, which show very clearly both of these truths and also why they're so important for us and our salvation. Uh, The question we're thinking about today, and it's on the sheets there, is how can Christ be both truly human and truly God? How can they both be true? Um, Elsewhere in the Bible, we know, for example, God is spirit, um, and yet humans are material. God is all-powerful, humans are weak, God is present everywhere, humans are limited in time and space and so on. How is it that Jesus could be both of these things at the same time? How could he be truly man and God? That's our question. And a good understanding of how to answer this question came gradually in the church, um, and it didn't reach its final form really until 451 AD, the Council of Chalcedon, we're going to get on to that. Um, and along the uh, course of the conversation, various wrong views were considered and then rejected. And we're going to spend some time now looking at three errors, three wrong views which the church rejected, which actually will be a help to us in clarifying what the truth really is. And the first wrong answer to the question I've got on the sheets is that um, Jesus has a human body and a divine mind. This is the view of Apollinarianism. Apollinaris was um, a bishop of Laodicea in the 4th century. He taught that the one person of Christ had a human body, like you and me, but where you or I would have a human mind or will or um, spirit, um, Christ had a divine mind instead of a human one. Uh, Think of it a little bit like... um, a mind transplant, out comes the human one, in slots the divine one. Um, I think of it a little bit like um, if you've seen Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, um, Hermione Granger ends up in a cat's body for one hour. She takes some polyjuice potion. So it's Hermione's mind, and but she's stuck in a cat's body. And the Apollinarians believe that um, Jesus had a divine mind, but it was stuck in a human body. But the trouble is that according to this model, um, just as Hermione hadn't truly become a cat, she just had the outer form of a cat, so in this model Christ doesn't really become human. He doesn't have a human mind or a human will. He just takes the outer form of humanity. And as we've seen, if you've been with us these last couple of weeks, that is a real problem because Jesus needs to be truly and fully human in order to represent us and save us. Um, Hebrews 2.17, Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So sometimes you've, you might have heard the language that Jesus is God in skin. I don't think that's the most helpful way to speak of Jesus because it can convey this, this idea that God was kind of just had the outer form of humanity in the person of Jesus. Um, and this view Apollinarianism was condemned by the church, rejected and finally rejected at the Council of Constantinople in 381. It was the wrong answer. Second suggestion, also wrong. Wrong answer number two. Jesus had only one nature. This is called, it's a hard word for me to say, monophysitism or Eutychianism, which is easier to say. Um, and it comes from mono meaning one or, and physis meaning nature. So these are the one nature people. The primary advocates of this view uh, primary guy was Eutyches, and he was the leader of a monastery at Constantinople. He taught that the human nature of Jesus was absorbed into the divine nature, so that both natures kind of merged and squished into a new sort of thing, a tertian quid, a third thing, a hybrid nature. And the diagram I've put there is of a mouse-elephant hybrid, it's not really a mouse, it's not really an elephant, it's a melephant or an elias. And that's the point here. It's, it's neither human, with this view, Jesus neither had a truly human nor a truly divine nature. He had something else. And uh, if you've been with us these last two weeks, you'll know that is a real problem. Jesus needs a truly human and a truly divine nature. He, we can't just have him as a kind of in-between superhero hybrid type. That was wrong answer two. Third wrong answer. Jesus is a human and a divine person. And the picture I've put up there is of a pantomime horse. Uh, Nestorianism is the doctrine that there were two separate persons within the Jesus. Uh, it's like two actors uh, occupying the same horse costume. Or some people illustrate it as a flat chair, two housemates in one flat and actually the person Nestorius, he was a preacher in Antioch and a, a bishop. Strangely, he never taught this heretical view, which goes by his name, but others certainly held to it. And the church condemned this view because it's so different from the way the Bible presents it. That nowhere in scripture do we get this idea that um, there's this tension in Christ with two different persons within him pulling in different directions. Rather, in the Bible, it's always a, a consistent view of a single person acting in wholeness and unity and integrity. Um, and it's been pointed out, if you do hold on to this kind of flat share view of Jesus, it really um, is very confusing. When you ring up the flat, how do you know which housemate you're talking to? Are you talking to Jesus the man? Or on this occasion, is it Jesus the divine son who's speaking? And therefore, we really... Um, don't know God is not revealed successfully in this view we don't know which uh, when we're talking to the divine flatmate so it's a real um, problem view it got rejected by the church so we've seen these three wrong answers to the question how can Jesus be truly God and man now we come at last over the page to the right answer Jesus is one person with two natures this is called the Chalcedonian definition. And I thought rather than putting an abstract diagram, which we could have done, um, it's more fitting, I think, just to put three snapshots 
from the Gospels, from Jesus' life. What we're talking about here isn't some philosophical theory from a textbook. We're talking about making sense of a real person, Jesus, who walked this earth. And so these snapshots, I think, demonstrate so vividly what Jesus is, who he is. He he has these human and divine natures um, united together and on display. Uh, The first picture um, is of Jesus when he was a helpless infant in his mother's arms, so human and yet receiving worship from the Magi as Lord and God. Or secondly, at Jesus' baptism, he's stepping into, he's kind of consciously showing solidarity with the human race, putting on shirt humanity and yet at the same time God the Father is declaring from heaven this is my son he's divine and um, or thirdly moments after he wakes up from his slumber it's such a human thing to do sleep on the boat he then demonstrates this divine authority over nature um, and again and again in the gospels we get this picture of a full humanity and a full divinity united together in one person and that is what Chalcedon is trying to express and defend. So this council was held um, in 451 AD um, near Istanbul and the resulting statement um, is to guard against the three errors that we've thought about. And this has become the, the standard orthodox summary of the Bible's teaching on this question for Protestants and, and Catholics and the Orthodox Church ever since. I think everyone except um, the Ethiopian and Coptic Orthodox and the Syrian Jacobite, ch- Jacobite Church hold to this. So what does Chalcedon say? Well, in opposition to the first problem, the Apollinarians, who taught that Christ's human nature is unlike ours because he doesn't have a human mind or soul, Chalcedon said um, that he, Jesus' human nature is exactly like ours in every respect except for sin. And that is wonderful news. It means Jesus can be our representative. Big thumbs up. Uh, um, unlike the wrong answer to the Eutychians, um, who taught that um, Jesus's two natures were squished into one, a hybrid nature. Chalcedon, on the other hand, taught that Christ's two natures remained intact. They were unchanged, unconfused, as the statement says. And that means that Christ can be truly man, truly God. He can truly represent us, truly save us. And that's a big thumbs up. Unlike the Nestorians, the third problem, they taught that Christ was really two people. Uh, Chalcedon, on the other hand, said that the two natures were united in one person. This is the so-called hypostatic union. And hypostatic union, I put the definition at the top of the first page. It's just a technical way of saying the union of Christ's human and divine natures into one being. It's from the Greek hypostasis, which means in this context, being. So it's the into one being union. Um, and it's a great you know, technical term that you can drop into theological conversation and sound very intelligent. So I hope we're beginning to see why all this is so important. We've spent two weeks, haven't we, covering why it's so essential Jesus was truly human and truly God. And here we see that there is a way of describing this which retains both of those elements. Um, Just a recap, if you are here two weeks ago, we thought about why Jesus' humanity was necessary. We needed a new Adam to represent us and we needed Jesus to be human, to be our substitute. An angel couldn't have subbed in for us. It had to be a human. 
last week we're thinking about why Jesus' deity is so important, so that he can reveal himself to us, so that he can uh, save us. Um, How could one person's sufferings for a few hours atone for the sins of millions of people, each of which um, deserves eternal punishment? And the answer is only an infinite being, only God himself could atone for our sin. And the reason thinking rightly on this matters, as we've seen, is because all of these alternate views, wrong views one, two and three, they would have left us with a Jesus who was disqualified from being our saviour. Only a truly human, truly divine Christ can save us. Um, Now, I'm aware that this still leaves all kinds of questions and mysteries for us. We have to still somehow um, put together parts of, of, of who Jesus is. We have to say that, yes, he was asleep in the boat, according to his human nature, and yet at the same time he was sustaining the universe by the word of his power according to his divine nature or Jesus was ignorant he says about the timing of when he's going to return according to his human nature and yet he knew all things according to his divine nature obviously there's still mysteries and questions to unpick here but they're mysteries we can approach with humility Uh, we recognize that we're not God only God is and so There'll be lots of things that we don't understand, and that's okay. And before we finish that, I want us to address one final error in this area. But this time it's not an ancient error uh, from the first few centuries of the church. This is a much more contemporary one, and I think one which we're more likely to come across today, although we may have not have come across the name of it. And that is the wrong answer number four. Jesus emptied himself of certain divine attributes. This is a position known as the kenotic theory. And it comes from a particular reading of Philippians 2, verse 7, which I'm going to read. Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And that phrase... He made himself nothing is from the Greek word kenosis and the phrase literally means Jesus emptied himself. And this language of emptying, it led to a theory in the 19th century called kenotic theory. And according to this theory, in the incarnation, Jesus was emptying himself of certain divine attributes. He kept some some of them. He kept God's holiness or God's love, but he got rid of some of the others. He, He got rid of and God's knowing everything and God's being all powerful. Um, now, um, Spider-Man fans will know that um, when there's danger close, he gets a spider tingle. And I hope that we have something of a theological spider tingle right now. We're already thinking this doesn't feel quite right. And hopefully from our teaching so far, we're, begin- we're asking ourselves the question, hang on. If Jesus empties himself of his divine attributes, in what sense is he still God? And we would be right to ask that question. Um, Kenotic theory really does undermine Jesus's full deity. Let's put it this way. If, if a duck loses, you know, if a duck abandons its attributes of having a beak and webbed feet and wings and so on, in what sense is it still a duck? And the answer is it's not. It's something else. And it's the same with 
God the Son. If he abandons his divine attributes, uh, his divine authority and his divine knowledge and his divine omnipresence and so on, in what sense is he then still divine? Answer, he's not really. Uh, And there's another big problem behind this view. Uh, And that is the mistaken idea, which this view holds, that having divine attributes is somehow incompatible with taking human flesh. As if it's impossible to have a fully human nature and a fully divine nature at the same time. And one reason we know that must be mistaken logic is that the Bible teaches that Christ has taken flesh permanently. Uh, Think about it. Um, Jesus said, didn't he, that he was going to return from heaven in the same way that he went to heaven, with the same resurrection body. Um, Taking flesh wasn't just a phase for Jesus. You know, teenagers go through a phase and Jesus had a 30-year phase of becoming human. No, Jesus took flesh forever. He's done it for good. And yet we discover in the Bible that the risen Christ, for example, in Ephesians 4, ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. He also promises that he will be with each one of us to the end of the age. In fact, the Bible says that in Christ right now, this is Colossians 2, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. The point is that having these divine attributes, for example, you know, being present everywhere, these attributes cannot be incompatible with having a human body because Christ currently has a human body and he currently enjoys all these divine attributes. So we know it can't be true. And the point of all this is just to say canonic theory is wrong. And actually it's wonderful news that it is wrong. It means, for example, that when um, in the wilderness Jesus was tempted to make stones into bread, we looked at this uh, two weeks ago, um, that was a real temptation for Jesus. Jesus had the divine power to do that. He hadn't emptied himself of his power. Um, So in Philippians, it's not that Jesus emptied himself of divine attributes. The context makes clear that he's emptying himself of divine rights. Um, His rights to be worshipped, his rights to be served and so on. And and of course, that makes sense of the context in Philippians. Um, That He's being held up as an example to the Christians, not because we're to imitate him in emptying ourselves of our attributes, whatever that would mean. Um, But because we're to imitate him in in emptying ourselves of our rights, we're to consider others as as better than ourselves and look to others' interests and so on, like Jesus did. And wonderfully, this verse in Philippians 2 says, from start to finish, Jesus took the nature of a servant. The point is that Jesus never used his power to serve himself or protect himself or make his life easier. He used his power only and always to serve others. And that is so significant because getting clear on this doesn't just clarify the truth that Jesus really is God and really does have divine attributes, but it magnifies the wonder of Jesus's love, his humble self-giving love. For example, when Jesus was on the cross, do you remember the onlookers, they were mocking him, ridiculing him, they said, If you are the son of God, come down from the cross in Matthew 27. That was a real temptation for Jesus. Unlike any victim of crucifixion ever, Jesus 
was choosing moment by moment to remain up on the cross. I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay. Every second was a conscious decision for Jesus. And so the Jesus Storybook Bible captures this perfectly when it says, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus there. It was his love for you and me. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus on the cross. It was his love. And as is always the case with true theology, it's always so practical, isn't it? Because it magnifies Jesus and it magnifies his love for us. What a saviour we have. And so in summary, what this teaching is doing here is helping us to to think and speak rightly about Jesus and helps uh, to protect things which are uh, infinitely precious, not least that Jesus can save us. And what it doesn't do is answer every question. Uh, Or indeed, take away our wonder and our amazement at Jesus. Um, There's a wonderful place in C.S. Lewis's last book, um, The Last Battle, last book of the Narnia series, where Lord Diggory comments that in Narnia, the stable is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And Queen Lucy responds, yes, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it That was bigger than our whole world. This is the wonder of what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus's hypostatic union, his divinity and his humanity together. I wonder what you would say is the the most incredible miracle in the whole Bible. And we could argue that it's the resurrection of Jesus or the creation of the cosmos Um, The theologian Wayne Grudem argues, I think rightly, that the word taking flesh, the hypostatic union, is even more wonderful. And he says this, the fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever. So the infinite God could become one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle And the most profound mystery in all the universe. There really comes a point where uh, the most appropriate response to this is just wide-eyed wonder and worship. Uh, Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Uh, Dust of the earth on the throne of heaven. What a saviour we worship. Thanks for joining us for Bite Size. Uh, Do come back next time. Thank you for listening to Grace Pod. For more information about Grace Church Greenwich, visit www.greenwich.church.